I'm going to keep this short, believe it or not. I assured the other guys at a meeting, I can do this. 20 minutes, so 11.20, I'll be done, I promise. And then we'll have John or John or Cliff or Elaine come up uh, from Haiti Lifeline. If you weren't here for the Sunday school, they addressed us during the Sunday school hour, and they'll have 15 minutes here as well. Um, Following up on the theme of the Sunday school hour, Martin Luther you know, arguably the most uh, important uh, person during the period of the Reformation. And, you know, we talk about Luther. He's highly respected. Uh, Many people don't know Luther didn't like the Epistle of James. Uh, He said it was like straw. It was rough and unrefined. And when he printed Bibles, he didn't put it with the text of the New Testament. He put it as an appendix. That's how much he didn't like it. And, of course... If you know the history in Luther's day, and of course, Luther was a Roman Catholic monk. And in his day, if you remember your history just a little bit, uh, selling indulgences, we buy people's way out of purgatory and, and we earn our way to heaven. That was the works mentality, the, the world that Luther lived in. So Luther comes along and reads Romans 1.17, quoting Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. Well, of course, this turns his life upside down, and he starts understanding that you come to Christ through faith, you live through faith. It's not working our way to heaven. So Luther reads James' epistle, and he's got a problem with it, because in chapter 2 you read these uh, potentially conflicting concepts of faith and works. And that's why he thinks it wasn't or thought it wasn't worthy to be with the rest of the New Testament. You can appreciate his concern on one hand, especially in the culture in which everybody thinks and they've been instructed and taught, you've got to work your way to heaven. His concern was to make sure they understood that salvation is by God's grace through faith. But we're going to look through James 2 here briefly this morning because its message needs to be heard. In Luther's day, he wanted to make sure people didn't get the wrong idea about working their way to heaven. In our day, oftentimes, we need the flip side, the James side of this equation. So James 2, verses 14 through 26. James is a a uh, hard-shelled guy. He's like an Old Testament prophet. James says, What use is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? That is, relative to their needs, your words have absolutely no value. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works. I will show you my faith. By my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works, and not by faith alone. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. 
Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now to be clear on the front end of this, James is not saying that we are justified or declared righteous in God's sight by the works we perform. He's not saying that, and I'll tell you why in just a second. He is talking about the reality of faith being demonstrated to the world in which you and I live. The reality of the faith being demonstrated. So, James quotes Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. This, of course, is the verse Paul picks up on in Romans. Speaking to Jews primarily, as James was also, Abraham was the model of faith. So, James goes back to Abraham and he points out in Genesis 15, 6, when God told Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. You're going to have all these children. You're childless now, but it won't stay that way. And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned him as righteousness. He was declared right standing before God. Genesis 15, 6. When James quotes later, Genesis 21, I believe, it's about 25 years later when James says Abraham offered Isaac, verse 21, his son on the altar. This was about 25 years later. So James says Abraham was declared in right standing before God in Genesis 15. But the reality of that faith was demonstrated to the world around him 25 years or so later when he takes his son, his only son, and offers him or prepares to offer him up to God on Mount Moriah as he was instructed to do. So we don't need to confuse James and think that he's telling us that we are justified before God by good works. He uses Abraham as the model. That's the reminder. Abraham was declared in right standing by God through faith, not through works. But the reality of Abraham's faith was demonstrated to others and he was justified not before God but for the world when his works followed his faith. This was the issue though that Luther had. It was, are we confusing? I'm right with God by the things I do or by faith in Jesus Christ. Also, when James says that Abraham's faith was perfected, uh, this Greek word teleos or telos, we get telescope from the same word. Um, This word is used throughout the New Testament, almost always with this this thought. (laughs) This thought. Uh, It's not that you're perfect the way we think of perfect, flawless, without any downside at all. That's not the thought. The thought is that you've become the full-grown version of what you're intended to be. So when Paul says be perfect, he's not saying that you won't sin. He's saying be the grown-up or the fulfilled version of what you're supposed to be. So if you think about it as looking uh, life through a telescope, when I look out at a distance, I see myself as I should be. Well, Paul says that's what we should grow up to be. James says the same thing. When Abraham performed the work of offering Isaac, he was demonstrating a perfect faith. It was simply a full-grown faith. It was faith that was what it was supposed to do. It produced something. It produced good works. That's the kind of perfection we're called to. James says that when faith motivates us to work in the ways that honor God and help others, that faith is what it's meant to be. It's a grown-up faith. If we say we have faith, but we don't have a life that produced good works, James says, related to the world around us, it is useless. It's without value. It's words only. You know that if you're a child in a family, 
your toddler, you're an infant, your baby, whatever, very little is expected of you. Everybody else does things for you. But the older you grow, the more responsibilities you take on because you're able to. Because as you mature, you're able to turn around and work also. So if you're an older sibling in a family, you're able to turn around and help with younger siblings in a family. The older you get, the more expectation there is that you'll pitch in, that you'll work. Or if you're a student, if you're in the kindergarten, you're learning your ABCs, there's very little thought of how responsible you are for your own education or for helping others. But by the time you get in high school or college, the thought is you now not only know how to learn for yourself, but you should be able to turn around and help others with their education as well. That's kind of the thought here. James says your faith is supposed to grow up. It's supposed to become perfect. It's supposed to become what faith was always intended to be. It's something that motivates you to work and to action, not just to words. James is telling Christians who are otherwise content to sit on their backsides that they need to grow up, have a grown-up faith, pitch in with the work God has for them and for the church. And he reminds us that our confession of faith in Christ should be validated, it should be confirmed, it should display itself in good works. Now, if Luther had a problem with James, he potentially also had a problem with John. I'm thinking of 1 John's epistle. You can turn there if you want. We'll look at a few verses in 1 John 3 and 4. John, the apostle, the one who authored the Gospel of John and the three epistles that bear his name, John had no problem understanding how a person went from guilty before God to righteous because his gospel's written to tell us how to get saved. And at the end of his epistle, 1 John 5, 13, he says, John, we write to those who believe in the name of Jesus Christ that they may know that they have eternal life. John has no confusion about the path to salvation, the means of right standing before God either. But listen to what he says in 1 John 3, 16 through 18. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. That is, when it comes to love, John says, don't tell me, show me. Don't say it, do it. In that same epistle in chapter 4, verse 10 and 11, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son, the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And that is, John's formula here seems to be, God's love did something. God loved us, and that meant He sent His Son to cover our sins. So John says that's the model for our love. If we say we love, it's supposed to be a motivating love that causes us to do something. God loved, He sent His Son. We say we love, it means we're motivated to work. Same chapter 4, verses 19 through 21. We love because He first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. The one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. John uses love more than 
works here, but the thought is the same. John says, don't tell me about your love for God. Show me. The words by themselves are meaningless. These were words we used to quote to our girls at bedtime. Same th- the same thought. Don't tell me about it. Show me. Demonstrate it. Do it. James and John are both talking about the same thing. It's the, the call to let our deeds match our words. Whatever our confession is, that that reality is displayed in the rest of our life. If you're a parent and you have multiple siblings, you know a little bit of how this feels. If one of your children is beating up on another, how do you feel about the one who's doing the beating up? Or if one sibling needs help and the other turns their back on them, how do you feel about the one turning their back on the other as a parent? Because the thought is this, of course, you love them both. You're committed to them both. And when one either disrespects, doesn't help, whatever, doesn't show your kind of love to the other, you're disappointed, you're frustrated, you're angry. How can one child of your love not show love to the other child of your love? And that's kind of what's going on here. God says, I've loved you. It cost me my son. Jesus says, I laid my life down for you. John quoted uh, from John 15 earlier. The Upper Room Discourse says this same thing. People will know you belong to me because you love one another. It's the same thing. That faith is supposed to be revealed in works. John says love is supposed to be revealed by actions, by loving actions. James and John are not telling us how to get saved. They're not telling us how to move from darkness to light, how to move from God's judgment to right standing. They're telling us how to live once we're there give reality to our claim. You know, it's easy to forget, but we live in a country of a country and a time of incredible riches and affluence. And we all live in heated homes and we have air conditioning when it gets hot in the summer. We have good food. I mean, we've got lots of food. You know, for most of us, we've got too much good food. If we get sick, we've got health care. It's so comfortable, in other words, that it's often easy to mistake God's intention for our life that we think God wants us to be comfortable, that that's His goal because that's our typical experience. But we're missing the mark if that's our conclusion. God's called us to love and to serve. That's our call. It's to lay our lives down. You remember John 4, Jesus said God's looking for those who worship Him in spirit and in truth. And if you remember biblically, the model of worship is I bow down before my superior. And when I bow down, I essentially tell the person I'm bowing down to, you're my superior. All that I have and am is yours. So as those who've come to know God through Christ, as those who've already come to be justified by faith in Christ, we're then called on to demonstrate the faith in works, live out the love in action. I don't say this to lion and lamb because I think we're deficient here. The church has been, in my view, exemplary since our inception in being committed to this mature kind of faith that produces works or love demonstrated in action. And we give financially, we give in prayer, we give in time and energy to the rescue mission and to the poor in our own midst, on our own back back porch. A Voice of the Martyrs internationally is a group that we commit to that sends out uh, the magazine on the table 
that helps Christians in other parts of the world who need help physically, financially, safety-wise. Christmas shoe boxes we do every year in which we're sending out uh, trinkets, if you will, but things that will be valued by kids in other parts of the world around the, wor- around the world, and also just the work projects that are done for various families in the church as well. So I say this not to a group that isn't already demonstrating faith in works or love in action, but one that has, but also to say this is one of those things where these are not laurels or badges of honor that we wear. When we do these things, we're just living the normal Christian life. We're not doing anything exceptional or above the call. We're just doing the minimal, the least that is expected of anyone who calls on the name of Christ. As you think about this this morning now, or as you think about this later, ask yourself, what work of faith is God calling me to? Personally, you individually. Each one of us will have things God has for us that aren't true for others. What work of faith does God have for me? Collectively, what work of faith does God have for us as a church? Who is God calling you to serve? Who is God calling us as a church to serve? When you think of this, start at your own doorstep. In other words, uh, we live in a time when we are overloaded with communication. We know what's going on in Topeka and in Kansas and in the States and in the world. I just get on my computer in the morning and I can see headlines from around the world. It's overwhelming. You'd say there's no way I as an individual or we as a church can meet all the needs we're aware of. So don't worry about that. But you know the truth is once in a while someone will show up on your doorstep and you'll know this is the person God wants me to serve. This is the person God wants me to serve. So don't think internationally to start, though I wouldn't say limit it, but God can show you that. You don't have to think that big. You can think right here with my neighbors in my workplace, in my city, in my neighborhood, who is God calling me to serve? What needs has God put before me? One of the works clearly for Lion and Lamb Church that God has put on our doorstep is Haiti Lifeline and the orphanage in Haiti. And I love the fact, Elaine talked about this in Sunday school. You know, we're a small group, and any one of us, we're just individuals. I love the fact that there was this group, these farmers in central Kansas, that were having an impact in another part of the world. This is, I, I love this. It doesn't have to be big or impressive. And I love the fact that uh, the Vincents knew the O'Beerns, knew the church in Heston, and they're traveling through Topeka. And they say, can we just show you about an orphanage in Haiti? In other words, this, God brings it to our doorstep. We didn't go looking for this. But when we saw that presentation and we talked about it as a church, our first thought wasn't, uh, should we do anything? It's what should we do? And how should we do it? And what does that look like? And it was just as if someone came and knocked on our back door and said, uh, we need some help or, you know, can you help out here? So it doesn't have to be, you don't have to get uh, wildly creative about this stuff because God will bring those needs to you. And James says, let your faith produce works. And John says, let your love produce actions. And for us, certainly as a church, one of those key things 
has been has become Haiti Lifeline. We're committed to Haiti Lifeline and the orphanage financially and in prayer. There's a couple projects that have followed up related to some computer and some uh, educational things. There's also some other things that we'll be talking about after lunch as well and some things that um, as leaders of the church we'll, we'll chat with that we've wondered if we couldn't be of additional help as well. But we want to be characterized as being real. I think you guys know if you've been here any time. Uh, if you want a better club, there's clubs available. You know, if you want other things, I don't know. All kinds of options are available in other groups. We're not big, we're not impressive. But we do want this. Whatever's here, we want it to be real. We want reality. And I think that's where God lives. So ask yourself, what does God want for me? What faith work does God want for me? What loving action does God want from me? And as a church, we're delighted to have the Ratzliffs, the Reimers, and Cliff here with us this morning. And they're going to take 15 minutes and come up and share a little bit. I know all of you weren't here for the Sunday school hour, so they'll share a little bit more about Haiti Lifeline. But this is one of those things that we know for us as a group, this is one of those works of faith God has called us to. John, or however you want to do that, come on and share with us what you guys would like to for this time. So we've got oh. you. Okay. Uh, I guess. It's not a very large room, so I. Uh, can, is that where I had to have about there? Okay. Yeah, I can do that. Okay, now you can. Now I didn't even realize there, I was looking. So, there are people up there. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, but uh, I spent. We spent a good part of an hour here after the uh, the, the the video presentation by Ken uh, talking about the orphanage, and I don't want to. We've got 15 minutes, so I'm not sure where to start with just the highlights. But uh, uh, I guess one of the issues. Uh, the question that was asked about some of the most, the, high, the greatest concerns and challenges uh, at the Lifeline Orphanage is, is uh, as these kids, there are 75 kids in this orphanage, and uh, uh, they are not all orphans. Some of them are just uh, uh, from families that couldn't take care of them, and, and so they brought them over there uh, from that perspective. But they all, as they grow older, uh, there's a point where they need to leave that orphanage. And, uh, and so... Uh, what do you do with uh, 15, 16, 18-year-old kids uh, that uh, have brought, been brought up in the way that they should go? They know the Lord. Uh, it says that, I mean, they, are, they belong. God has them in, their, in His hands, and He won't let them go. But you, you have a hard time, we in this world have a hard time of seeing them released into a culture that's a cruel, hard culture. Uh, we, we consider, and uh, John Reimer here talked about, a uh, friend of mine, Don, Don Fraze, they were with our team this uh, this time too this year, and talking about all the affluence, all the things we have in this country, our, our good life, the good American life, uh, in comparison to what we see there. The kids in the orphanage, in their perspective, they've got it all. I mean, compared to the, their counterparts on the outside who are grubbing out, you know, hopefully it's a successful day in Haiti if you get to eat a meal a day. And so, uh, you know, who is more blessed is kind of the question that comes up. Uh, they, uh, 
you know, to live in Haiti, you have to live by faith uh, because you don't have retirement accounts, you don't have a bank account, you don't have any retirement plan, you don't have a medical insurance policy to take, you know, that you can go see a doctor and your bills are covered or nothing to fund like that. You don't have to worry about that. It's not available. Uh, so, uh, you know, you truly live by God's grace and how he's, you're dependent on God. And, uh, and so uh, we see that in Nicole uh, Judone, the, the Haitian lady who's the administrator and founder of the Lifeline Orphanage. And that's, I think, what drew many of us so powerfully into that, into this work when we, I shared this morning when we first heard Nicole give her testimony in Heston, Kansas in, in the summer of 1998. We were drawn to her simply by that and we could feel the Spirit of God working in her life. And as we went, we went there and we learned to know her and her husband. Uh, that became very evident and that's been a powerful influence on everybody. It's not us, only those that can't, I mean everybody that goes there today as team members and whatever. And when you get around Nicole and Daniel and you hear their hearts and hear see how they, they live and how they, and they're, they're, they're strong advocates for the Lord. I mean, Daniel is a, the senior pastor of the Church of God uh, there in Quadibique, which is, uh, is the mother church of many churches throughout Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Um, there's more to that, too. There's an older brother who's late in his 70s who really was the, the, uh, uh, the, the uh, I guess, the nucleus of this thing when it started back when he was, a, you know, he's 70 now, so this ministry that they went back to as a family was 40 years old. He, he came uh, back into Haiti as a 30-year-old young man, uh, which is, his name is Isaiah Judone, and he's still, he's in a wheelchair now. But uh, Daniel is the younger brother, late 50s, taken over the senior pastor. But uh, God has blessed their ministry and their obedience to leave a good life in the United States where they came to get, the, they were sponsored. We've talked about that sponsoring today. is still a very good avenue, probably the best one we're thinking. But that's how Isaiah, Daniel, and Nicole all got their education, sponsored to the United States when they were in their youth, went back, this family went back, three brothers as pastors and Nicole went back to their homeland and uh, to be the Lord's servants there and to, to take the gospel into their country. And so uh, that's what has been a powerful influence for all of us as, 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 as uh, participants of these teams and, and providing leadership for Haiti Lifeline Ministries to walk and talk with people of that kind of, a, that high level of faith. Uh, and uh, what we can learn from that is said too, you know, we they, I think they can truly honestly be said that we probably, they have more to offer us than we have to offer them in the area of living and walking by faith and, and uh, trusting God and not depending on all the things that the, the physical and, and things that this secular world has allowed us to have. You know, that's a big question I'll have for the Lord. I, you know, if, if it probably won't matter when I meet Him face to face, but, you know, why? Why does one group of people allowed to have so much, overindulge, more than we ever need, and then you go, what, an hour and 45 minutes out of Miami, Florida to a little island out there in the Caribbean where people basically have nothing, you know. Why? Well, there's various reasons. I mean, I uh, don't want to get in the history of Haiti, but there's talk. I mean, uh, we know that Haiti was uh, uh, broke away from the French in 1804, so it's a little over 200-year-old country. And, they, and Daniel, uh, Nicole's uh, husband, he's a, he's a lot of things. He's a farmer. He's a school superintendent. He's a pastor and a very good one, very biblically uh, uh, knowledgeable, uh, good preacher. And uh, he's also a historian, loves history. And he talks about the, uh, the, 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 the fact that Haiti, they were they're, they're descendants from Africa. They were a slave population that came in there. The French and the Spanish brought them in just like uh, came into the United States of America. And uh, 
They were slave labor in the sugar plantations of that island. It was a very prosperous, the most prosperous possession that the French had. And uh, what happened to that country? And Daniel says, well, the biggest mistake that we as a people, as, as, a, as a black nation uh, made was when we drove, when we revolted against the French and drove them out. We would be far better off today if we had stayed with French rule. He said, we paid the price for 200 years. We've never been able to come up. We had never had the ability to govern ourselves. And government is so terribly important. And, you know, when we look at our own government, we can criticize it. And our government is far from perfect. But it's still, this is a country that if somebody has a choice, this is where everybody wants to be. And so in spite of our problems, uh, we are still blessed as a nation and a people. And, uh, of course, uh, we all see that the direction our nation is going today is troubling. And so uh, uh, that may be changing in the future, too. But that's, that's kind of a nutshell what, where, where this whole thing is at. And uh, uh, I guess uh, as I answered the question, we're, we're hoping to maybe set up some sponsorship programs for these older children in the orphanage uh, that we can uh, be responsible for a child uh, to come in on educational visas after they learn some basic English. And I just talked with Steve. Uh, we are... Uh, uh, that computer is a terribly important thing that they, we brought back and they programmed it with the Rosetta Stone software so that uh, they can start learning some basic English. And some of these older kids, as soon as they can know basic English and can read a, a, a form uh, that's printed in English and get over here for educational visas, uh, the better. And we're thinking that that might be an op- a good option for some of these older kids to uh, give them an opportunity and uh, to, to leave Haiti and to... to maybe pursue in higher education and, and then uh, that's in God's hands what, where, where they go from there, whether they go back like the, the Judone family did, many of them, or whether they stay here. But uh, I guess I want to open it up for further questions. Maybe you can, what are questions we haven't covered or things that you have on your mind that you'd like to ask? Any of us, uh, John, Cliff, Elaine, any, maybe some of these questions you ask might be more pointed towards some of the remarks that they've made. And our time is probably getting close up, too. Yes, go ahead. How often do you, as any lifeline ministers, how often do you send students? Well, uh, it started out, and it still remains that way. We, we were a bunch of farmers, uh, several of us were, that when this organized uh, the leadership that was involved. And so it was a kind of a, just a seasonal thing that we, we needed to go in the off-season, which was wintertime. Well, uh, the island of Hispaniola, which the Dominican Republic and Haiti are on, is pretty far south, and it's always hot there. Even now, as you, they probably told you when we're there in, in January, when we get on a plane in Wichita, it's zero or seven degrees. You get off there, you know, a few hours, you know, eight, nine, ten hours later, it's 85, 90 degrees. And that's, that's in January. So it's a, it's a nice time to be in the wintertime. The nights cool off pretty nice, and, and we can be uh, productive and get things done, which is part of the reason we go there. We need to do some things that Nicole can't get done and, and help the mechanical and physical structure of Lifeline go from year to year. Uh, so it started out a winter project, and and uh, it continues that way. Uh, Cliff Good here, he was on one team that went in June. We were trying to, thought it would be nice to divide these teams up uh, so that we kind of were six months apart instead of 11 months apart, uh, just to have more continuity and cover more more maintenance issues. And they went in early June, and it was so hot uh, they couldn't even sleep at night. It was still and hot and humid, and and uh, we do have uh, some air-conditioned bedrooms there with, uh, uh, so we can sleep at night, which is important. If you're going to work in the heat, you have to be at least able to rest at night. And so that was kind of an issue. And so uh, today we're still kind of going back to that wintertime routine. 
uh, like this year, we uh, there's a second team just we had two Kansas teams. Uh, we had 30, 30 some applicants, and we divided divided into two teams because uh, we were 16 on this team, and that was pretty well maxed out with our facilities. And they, the second team just got back here a couple of days ago. There's a, a medical team uh, from uh, Illinois. There's a story in itself how we got involved with that uh, back when Elaine and I were there back in '99. We met a gentleman from Illinois, and we have permanent ties with that group. Uh, they're sending a medical team, not all medical, but some medical people on it. They call themselves a medical team that's going the 12th of February uh, for a term. And, uh, uh, and then there's uh, uh, some cabinet people. Uh, we're rebuilding. Uh, in that kind of an environment, insects are prolific. Termites love it there. Anything made out of wood, tends to, if it's standing still, doesn't get slid around, it tends to get destroyed by termites. And so everything's cinder block, concrete construction. And uh, we had a kitchen... Uh, the last number of years that was deteriorating, the kitchen sink was about ready to collapse on the floor, made out of plywood and it didn't work. And so anyway, uh, we have a, a, a guy with a cabinet uh, carpentry abilities from Ohio that has a real heart for lifeline, and, and he came up with the idea. We knew it would have to be metal or maybe a plastic material, and there's this material called AZAC. It's a plastic-type particle board, and they built a, the whole lower part of the kitchen has been rebuilt with this material, and it's termite-resistant. It's a beautiful white kitchen, but the top upper cabinets hadn't been done yet. So he said a year ago he wanted to go back with his helper. They're going back in early March to tear the top cabinets out, so it's all done in AZAC, and it, the termites won't won't bother it. So that's and it's essential that we have a place to prepare food there when we're there. And so that's a, a be the fourth team going then in early March. It'll be a smaller team. And then there's another medical team going in mid March uh, from uh, from that same area of Ohio. It's all the Apostolic Christian Church. That whole group. Uh, Fairbury, Illinois, and it's, a, it's all one church group, but there, some of them are in Ohio and some in Illinois. That's kind of how this interesting thing, what um, I think Elaine mentioned, the, the way, yeah, the way it goes word of mouth, how, how uh, this thing is snowballing, you know. It, you know, somebody knows somebody and somebody knows and they share a little bit about their experience in Haiti, the orphanage, and, and somebody, is, the spirit lays it on somebody's heart, and I'd like to go, and they go and they come back and they tell a story, and, and this... Uh, uh, God is blessing His ministry in that way, as this snowball kind of gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and and uh, you know uh, the, the the involvement, both you know from all the people involved, is growing, and that's it's it's exciting, and we know God's hand is in it as we see see this happen before eyes, and there's a lot of a lot of things happening that are are not possible, would not be totally would be totally impossible without God's hand in it, and I might say this Danton program, the shipment, the uh, the, uh, that we're doing each year, that's an issue that, uh, a thing that uh, I've been directly involved in, and uh, it's, uh, it's a shipment that allows uh, U.S. Uh, relief charitable organizations to use. We pay for it as taxpayers, but it's using military uh, aircraft transportation on a space-available basis. If our government, if our military is serving that particular part of the world, if those planes are going in there, and they have space available, they will take relief shipments uh, ranging from a minimum of 5,000 pounds up to 100,000 pounds. So you can get a lot of stuff in. And that's the program we're using. I mean, if you shipped in private containers, you know, those shipments, we just shipped in a 60,000-pound shipment, and that would have cost us over $20,000, 20 dollars 22000 to have done that privately. But uh, it takes paperwork and patience. But, you know, our government does have good programs available and, and things that we can utilize for... To, to benefit hum, human, humanity, and uh, so I'm getting to that point. Is you know, and I see how how that worked 
uh, we had this shipment sitting. We had it prepared last May, ready to go. I thought it would leave in the summertime. And time drug on and on, and, and there were problems in some of the government offices in D.C., and, and all of a sudden it was November and in December, and I, I, got a, uh, I was having trouble getting things moving from my side. And, I, of course, there's a time when, you know, you, you really start getting serious with your prayer life and turning this over to God. And, and uh, finally I, I was given a call, gotten, received a call from a, from a uh, uh, retired military uh, major in uh, uh, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and he was the uh, he was the one that oversaw the Danton program, and uh, and he uh, of course we he was familiar with our our uh, Haiti Lifeline Ministries because he said we were the only ones that were using the program to ship things into Haiti, and so he was and he had, of course on the applications he had a name phone number and everything, and so he called me and and assured me that the problem was in D.C. with administrative problems he were, he had been responsible on releasing firing the administrator there and they were replacing people. And it was going to take another 10 days. And, and he said that, and I said, well, I said, you know, we had a, this was back in, I guess it would have been November. Sure, this would have been back in November because I said, you know, we, we need to start committing ourselves to these, these, uh, these tickets if we're going to get these work teams in. We're scheduled to go in there in December, or I mean January, but the shipment has, it's imperative that the shipment be there to have the work teams there or else, you know, you don't want to lay out, you know, two teams. It costs, you know, $15,000 or so to get, move everybody over there it's not a, and you don't want to commit all these teams people's money everybody's paying their own bill but still committing all this money and sure we could go there and just spend time with the children but without all these supplies we wouldn't be able to do very little more and they needed a lot more than that too they needed other help too and he said well he said I'll assure you that that shipment will be there he says I already got the plane uh, scheduled to go into Wichita Kansas but I've got to have this application out of the USAID department in Washington DC well this was all going on all this time and and uh we had a trust and pray for that God would turn hearts and, and people would come, you know, that people in authority, just like the adoption thing, that people would come along. Fortunately, we were praying for our own country and our own government and our own authorities versus Haiti at the time. Haiti needs a prayer too. But uh, the fact is, this did all come together and that shipment went out right around after Christmas. It arrived there on Sunday afternoon at 1.30 on the 31st of December and uh, they spent uh, till midnight unloading the thing, but they got it all, it was all in there in the warehouse and we got there a week later. And it was just a reminder that, you know, God's faithful. Uh, we often hear the saying that God, He doesn't always show up early, but He's never late. And, and, and He wasn't late. He just, uh, and it was just like a miracle to us to see how, how that all found a place. And the teams have gotten so much done uh, that more than we probably even uh, imagined. And so God's hand is, he's, he's allowed these things to happen. And He's the one that's honored and, and uh, lifted up through it all. Right. Uh, to share openly about how Christ is behind what is going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the water project that uh, Tim Hidio talked about and you all talked about, whereby water is provided to the local community outside the orphanage as well. Are there other aspects of their vision that will impact the larger community too? Uh, if they are able to get things locally, uh, uh, they taken care of? Uh, Very much so. Yeah. they. We already are thinking, you know, uh, we're, we're not totally out of work in the compound. It's a four and a half acre compound, uh, but you know the the, uh, 
the, the, the lodging, the dormitory facilities are completed pretty well. We're dealing with the eating area for the kids uh, in this classroom. Uh, the government has been in there and has, has kind of uh, um, encouraged us to get the clinic is at one end of the guest house, and they'd like to have, when we come in, the Americans or people come in and visit the orphanage and work there, they'd kind of like to have the healthy people isolated from the sick people that come in, which is a logical thing, but there's not facilities. So we may, we still have vision of building a clinic, building up on the front of the orphanage and getting the clinic completely out of the guest house and using that kind of as off-season classrooms when we're not there and so forth. Some of those projects are still pending, and I think they may, may develop. And there's a point in time where we will we will want to leave the orphanage and if, uh, if government, if, if things are in, in, a, in a state where there's not a lot of danger for foreigners circulating, and most of the years it's been that way with the exception of two years ago, uh, we, would, we will very much look at going and Daniel already has projects out in the mountains like putting up church buildings, uh, putting in cisterns, uh, whatever, uh, working out in the mountains and other outlying areas outside and in the community. Those are all possibilities. Uh, we just, in nine years, we haven't got there with the resources that we had at this point in time, but uh, we do see the ministry of Lifeline going. The church is, uh, has been spread out all over that island through the, the mother church, the Church of God, Bethel Church of God there. So, I mean, the, the churches are out uh, in, the, in the mountainous areas, but as far as we as a teams, uh, we will probably in time, there will be a time when I think we will go out, uh, you know, on service projects outside the walls of Lifeline. Yeah, very much so. Last question. Okay. The orphanage hasn't been in existence that long. This orphanage has not. Uh, no. So I don't know. We do have, a, there is a, are a few of these younger people that are outside, that have left the orphanage, that are back in society living with relatives or somebody in the church family. And maybe, you know, but I, I think Nicole, when we ask, well, what about, what about James? Or what about uh, uh, Shelley? Shelley was another gal, a wonderful gal that she's no longer, she's got old and, you know, I don't know if you asked Nicole about her this year, but, you know, where are these kids? And I think Nicole probably knows pretty much where they're at, but uh, they're probably not, uh, you know, they're probably having a pretty tough life. And I know she says, uh, she has said that some of these kids, they'll come back to Lifeline and, you know, ask for a little help, and she always, you know, tries to help them a little bit with a little bit of food or a little money or something because they're just, you know, it's tough to, to, to survive outside. And, of course, life expectancy in Haiti is... Maybe not not even 50 years old at average on average, so that shows. That. So I guess we'll be used more than used up our time. Yeah, yeah. Thank you.